Welcome to our sixth remote podcast as we adapt to life in a pandemic. This morning, we complete our Heart of the Kingdom message series, which links Jesus's Sermon on the Mount with the heart of the one who preached it. God is Lord of all creation, but more narrowly, the kingdom is his spiritual rule over the hearts and lives of those who willingly submit to his authority. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's best known, yet least followed teaching. G.K. Chesterton, a Christian writer from the last century, wrote this. The Christian ideal has not been found tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. The unique challenge of the Christian life is evident from the start of Jesus' sermon, the Beatitudes, which describe the need for emptying before filling. While we strive for self-sufficiency, kingdom people live in a perpetual state of dependence and need, poor in spirit, mournful and meek, hungry and thirsty. By his initiative, God arrives and fills our lives with hope, meaning, and love. And we walk the way of mercy, pure in heart, peacemaking, and persevering. We influence our world as salt, giving the world a taste of heaven. And uh, we are light, revealing the way to others. We serve with singleness of heart, uniquely blessed, confident of God's care. Now, Jesus completed his basic instruction on life in God's kingdom with the golden rule in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. And there he said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Finally, now, he calls those gathered, listening by the hillside, to take his teaching seriously and commit themselves to his way. And Jesus presents a binary choice between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. He lays out our decision in the clearest of terms, a choice between two highways to travel, between two harvests to gather, between two hearts to reveal, and between two houses to build. So let's look together at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 29. First, we see two highways. In Matthew 7, 13, Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. There is a narrow path, the highway of holiness, the king's highway, and... There's the world's Autobahn to destruction. The narrow or straight way, the straight and narrow, is restrictive, not allowing for worldly luggage, it's traveling light. The narrow way is less traveled because it's a hard path to walk. The wide way is far more spacious, accommodating a crowd and the baggage they bring. It's a comfortable ride that, uh, whether they know it or not, leads to destruction. In Proverbs 14, 12, it says, there is a way that appears right to a person, but in the end, it leads to death. Neither of these roads are an end in themselves, 
The destination is the point. One leads to life and one leads to death. In Luke 13, verse 23, someone asked Jesus, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Now, Jesus's point uh, was that who's on which road is not our concern. He, he didn't address their question directly. He said, just focus on your path. Jokes about the pearly gates with St. Peter at the entrance deciding whether a person gets in is just that. Uh, it's a joke. Our fate is already decided by the path we chose. And both paths lead into eternity, but only the narrow gate opens into the presence of God. Now, the choice is clear. And so why would anyone choose the wide way leading to destruction instead of the narrow way into God's presence? Well, faith seems silly, really. It can be embarrassing. Um, Hebrews described it as this. It's Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now, that level of trust is too risky for some. Anything that cannot be proven uh, by science or one's intellect is suspect. It's just fantastic stories, crutches for the weak. God is an evolutionary construct to deal with our fear of death. Now that we understand how lightning works and we can track natural disasters, we don't need God as an explanation. Also, pride leads to the oldest sin, human pride, rebellion, refusing to listen, distorting truth to fulfill a desire. This is the oldest playbook on booking passage on the wide path. Many choose the wide way because of their illusion of control. They don't want anyone telling them what to do. And so they book passage on the wide way and live in denial, comforting themselves that God doesn't exist. But just for a moment, let's explore the reality if there is no God. Uh, the world we live in becomes a random cosmic event that somehow created a planet that sustains life. We're all alone. There's no sign of life anywhere else in the universe, just here. Through randomness and chance, without God guiding the process, our com complex world and human life emerged on a planet that so far has sustained it. Life came from nothing is sustained by nothing and returns to nothing when death ends it, and that is it. And since there's no immaterial part of humanity, no soul lives on. We simply expire, stardust becoming nothing but stardust again. And the cycle will continue until a cosmic event ends it or human folly destroys it. No plan, no purpose, no progress. As a faith exercise, I sometimes place myself into this reality 
and open my senses to respond. I imagine simple nothingness, nothing, no presence of any kind. And soon a sense of emptiness overwhelms me, a feeling of dread, an existential despair. I realize why the multitudes who try to believe this distract themselves. Oh, with good deeds or bad deeds, with pleasure or pain, it really doesn't matter. There's no point. Uh, there's nothing there. No God defining what is true, beautiful, or real. Rejecting the image humanity is created in, we're left without a form for life. We try to ignore the conscience native to us. And that is one choice, one path. But there's another choice we can make. But this path requires a total commitment. It's all in. It can't be one foot in and one foot out. We place both feet on that path. There's an old joke about a pig and a chicken walking down a street and passing a restaurant with the sign, try our delicious ham and eggs. The chicken turned to the pig and said, that sounds good, I'm hungry. Let's get breakfast. To which the pig replied, well, for you, uh, it's just a contribution. But for me, it's a total commitment. Now, the truth is, Jesus was looking for a total commitment. When Jesus calls, he bids us to come and die, pick up our cross, and follow him. Grace is costly because it costs Jesus' life. And it is grace because it gives a person the only true life. Jesus made a total commitment to us and requires the same from us. Next, we see two harvests. In Matthew 7, 15, Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And Jesus' words reveal uh, that while we're not to judge others, we are to use discernment. He enjoins his followers to be fruit inspectors because the fruit reveals the root. And from a distance, the little black berries on the buckthorn, a wild weed, could be mistaken for grapes. And the flowers on certain thistles might deceive one into thinking figs were coming. But no one would be deceived for long. Living according to kingdom norms can be feigned for a time, uh, but what one is will eventually reveal itself in what one does. A person's produce are thoughts birthed in behavior. Right thinking, orthodoxy, leads to right behavior, orthopraxy. These deceivers were charismatic, persuasive, cloaking their words in sheep's clothing, seemingly harmless but ravenous wolves, walking the wide path. 
They were likely itinerants, traveling from place to place, following the crowds behind Jesus, reinterpreting his words, seducing some from the narrow way to the broad way leading to destruction. In 1 John 4.1, it says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, not all alleged prophecy is to be taken at face value. It must be tested, and the test is not the prophet's profession, but their fruit. Does their walk match their talk? One's fruit, not just what one does, but says and does, will reveal what that is. Ultimately, false teachers tear down faith and pro divisiveness and bitterness and ungodliness through their selfishness and their self-absorbed quest to fleece the faithful. One of the more disappointing developments as we struggle through COVID-19 are false prophets uh, claiming to be Christ followers, cloaked as caring shepherds, but fleecing the faithful for personal gain. One example, a televangelist named Kenneth Copeland has mastered the art of fleecing a flock. He leads an organization that channels millions into his personal account. A self-proclaimed prophet, the 83-year-old evangelist, is estimated to be worth $760 million. He has two private jets and a personal airport. And all of his income has come through this ministry. Now, recently, he appeared in a bizarre video where he claimed to blow the coronavirus away. He literally blew. He promised that if people touched their TV screens while he was blithering and blowing, that they would uh, be healed from the virus or protected from future infection. And he claimed that the pandemic would be over much sooner than you think because he executed judgment on the virus and demanded that a vaccine come quickly. As always, he closed the broadcast demanding that folks send in their tithes, whether they'd lost their jobs or not. If they will donate this seed of faith, wealth will come to them as it has come to him. And this harvest of greed and deception is not rooted in God. Now there's another harvest that reveals what a person is rooted in. And that is very different. It's the fruit of worry or the fruit of peace. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, the weight of worry is heavy. If I contract the virus, will I survive? Will I lose my job? What will the future be like? A new Gallup poll revealed that the majority of American adults, 60%, are experiencing emotional and sometimes physical symptoms of anxiety. Now that's up 21% from last summer. 53 million more worried adults, which is understandable under the circumstances. Following the health protocols is a constant reminder of the danger we face. And staying connected with friends and family with phone calls and Zoom chats and keeping a schedule that includes exercise and getting good nutrition this all helps, but peace that surpasses all understanding 
inexplicable peace is ours in Christ. And that's the only place we'll ultimately find it. Earlier in his sermon, Jesus taught that God's providence and care are so rich that uh, he clothes the grass with wildflowers that are neither productive nor enduring. And so what will he do for us? We're in good hands. To trust him is enough. And even in this difficult time, may the fruit of our lives reveal the root of our lives. If we profess to be Christ's follower, may our walk match our talk. May we tend to that love by reading the Bible and praying without ceasing and relentlessly channel his love to others. And through all of this experience, the peace of God. Is there any more profound example we could offer that Jesus's love changes us? Next, we see two hearts. Matthew 7, 21. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, while the false prophets were deceivers, these people are, self-dece- are self-deceived. They thought their words were enough, but their fruit revealed that they never opened their heart and submitted their life to him. So Jesus didn't know them. Oh, he knew their names, but also their games. And sadly, they were incapable of self-reflection. They were too busy believing that whatever pseudo-prophecy they uttered was from God, thinking they could drive out demons with a formula, just invoking Jesus' name. But their so-called miracles were nothing more than Jedi mind tricks. Jesus wasn't entertained because he looked through all of that into their hearts. These false teachers actually believed they represented God. They looked people in the eyes and made claims with great conviction. And some believed them, but not Jesus, because the condition of their hearts exposed them. They didn't serve humbly, secretly, ensuring that God was glorified. They sought to glorify themselves. And knowing Christ doesn't come through professions or apparently Christian activities, but on becoming poor in spirit and pure in heart. And this is the form of a Christ follower. God is the audience. And these folks sought a different audience. They wanted the world's attention. And since there was never an authentic relationship between Jesus and these opportunistic pseudo-disciples, he separated himself from their claims. Jesus, as a son of David, quotes a psalm of David. In Psalm 6, 8, it says, Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. Now, the term translated evildoers means literally those who work lawlessness. And the determinative factor regarding who enters the kingdom is obedience to the Father's will. It's their lawlessness was refusing to submit their hearts to the king. 
And because of the hardness of their hearts, they took the wrong path and bore the wrong fruit. While God the Father is the ultimate judge here, Jesus is the prosecuting attorney and presents his case. I never knew you. Now, this is a tough passage. Away from me uh, is a pronouncement of judgment. While the images of punishment in the New Testament, such as Gehenna or Sheol, the, the valley of death, or the unquenchable fire uh, in the book of Revelation, they shock us. These images are employed to illustrate the unspeakable horror of separation from God. The images are not the point. The reality is. Death is separation, and these describe spiritual death, the final destination of the wide path, the bad fruit, and hard hearts. And in effect, if a person chooses separation from God in this life, God honors their decision into the next life. It's much more popular today to try to soften Jesus' words or simply ignore them and imagine a way for everyone to end up in the same place. Nearly 50 years ago, John Lennon did just that. He wrote the ever-popular song, Imagine, that dreamed of a universe without heaven or hell, without countries or religion, anything that divides and distracts from living just for today. However, human nature would never allow that to happen. The hate and cruelty, murder, war, and racism that hobbles our world would continue because there's only one solution for the human condition, and that is grace. It's receiving Jesus' gift of forgiveness sealed by his sacrifice. It's entering God's presence and walking the narrow path by faith. The vibe Lennon longed for is found in a new community. And that new community is the kingdom of God. Finally, two houses. Matthew 7, 24 and following, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Well, we have come to find out that a poor site was chosen for the 58-story Millennium Tower in San Francisco, which has sunk 18 inches and tilted 14 inches since it was built in 2008. And the building rests on 950 14-inch wide concrete pylons planted in sand. And this is a common way to build, apparently, but the Millennium Tower is being torqued, and the sand is loose, and the building is leaning. And San Francisco is overdue, not for a storm, but a significant earthquake, which could liquefy the sand the tower is built on, like the marina 
district in the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake. Some of you might remember what happened there. Looking at the tower, it looks fine, but residents must level their living spaces due to the significant lean. Like a person who builds their life in the wrong place, everything can appear fine from the outside, but cracks form and ongoing repairs are necessary. The foundation built upon will bring endless trouble and worry. And the two houses in Jesus's parable represent not good and bad construction practices, but wise and foolish choices of a site. The foolish man builds as well as the wise, but makes the mistake of building his house on the sands of a wadi, the the dry bed of a seasonal river. When the rainy season arrives with its violent storms, a wild torrent rushes down the wadi from the hills and engulfs the house. The foolish man chose an easy site to build on uh, without considering the consequences of his choice. Now this parable sharply contrasts two ways of responding to Jesus's teaching. The leaders already mentioned heard Jesus's words, but refused to build their lives there. Instead, they chose shifting sand. Uh, But there are those who listen intently to Jesus's words and live by them. The lives they build upon the rock withstand the storms of life. Both wise and foolish hear Jesus's words. The difference is building on them. Those who pretend to have faith, who have a merely intellectual commitment, or who enjoy Jesus in small doses are foolish builders. When the storms of life come, their foundation is washed away. And Jesus presents a clear alternative. Walk the narrow path by submitting to his lordship and enjoy the joy, peace, and security of life with the king. Finally, in Matthew 7, 28 and 29, it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Now, this is the first of five sayings about Jesus teaching with authority. And we see it throughout the book of Matthew. When Jesus finished, the people, it says, were amazed. Literally, they were astounded, even panicky. Because ultimately, the Sermon on the Mount was the words of our Lord and King. And after the resurrection, in Matthew 28, 28, Jesus made the climactic declaration, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The awesomeness of that supreme authority is here anticipated in the reaction of the crowd. The heart of kingdom commitment is submission to this authority, to Christ's authority. As we close, James Stockdale was a U.S. Navy vice admiral and aviator awarded the Medal of Honor in the Vietnam War during which he was a prisoner of war for seven years. And during his incarceration, Stockdale noted that optimists fared worst in their brutal conditions and didn't make it out of Vietnam. Optimists were the ones who said, and this is from Stockdale, 
we're going to be out by Christmas, and Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter, and Easter would come, and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again. And they died of broken hearts. The coping strategy that helped Stockdale survive has come to be known as the Stockdale Paradox. And the Stockdale Paradox is unwavering faith while confronting the brutal facts of the present reality. Success comes through facing the facts and never losing hope. Stockdale said, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus brings us face to face with the brutal facts of God's holiness and human brokenness and offers us unwavering hope in his ability to build a life. We need this message as we face the brutal realities of the COVID-19 crisis. Jesus invites us to face these without fear, but walk the narrow path to bear the fruit of unwavering faith even as we believe him at his word. I hope you will return to Jesus' sermon again and again to center your heart and encourage your soul through the days ahead. And may hope lift and open our hearts to others as we follow the protocols and trust that God will take care of the rest. May we make each day one step closer to putting this pandemic behind us. 